Rivera stops. Triumph feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Welcome to the Mobcast, the only podcast willing to question mafiosos, bootleggers, and killers, but only after they've been dead for 80 years. Everything you hear on this podcast has been researched and fact-checked, but will include a healthy dose of my own conjecture. Mobcast will give you an in-depth look at the lives of the criminals who ran the underground of America during the early 20th century and how their lives compare to the popular depictions of these types of gangsters in movies such as The Godfather, The Untouchables, Goodfellas, and The Godfather Part II. Now, in order to give an objective view of the effect of these organized criminals on America during the time, I will rate each of them on a scale from 1 to 10 Pacinos. Now let's get started. What would eventually become the Genovese crime family arguably the most powerful crime family in American history, started out as an actual family of immigrants that came to America in 1892 from Corleone, Sicily. Giuseppe Morello, the de facto patriarch of the family, was the first to arrive in America, specifically into New York City. While many immigrants were flooding to America for opportunity, the 25-year-old Giuseppe was coming to America to escape Italian authorities, who had started to investigate him for the murder of a government witness who was about to help take down the counterfeiting operation that Giuseppe was overseeing. Giuseppe, who had come to be known as the Old Fox, had to rely on his leadership and strategic ability rather than his physical prowess due to being born with a malformed right hand. There have been some accounts of Giuseppe actually being right-handed, based on the poor handwriting displayed in his handwritten letters and his reported limited dexterity when working with his fully formed left hand. Six months after Giuseppe's arrival in New York City, the rest of his family made the voyage to America. The most notable members of this group were Giuseppe's three younger stepbrothers, Nicola, Ciro, and Vincent Terranova. The family stayed in New York for around a year, but suffering from the lack of available work, they traveled to Louisiana to stay with a cousin. For a year, Giuseppe worked with his stepfather, planting sugarcane, before moving on to Bryan, Texas, to work as a cotton picker. In 1896, the family ended up heading back to New York City, after being hit with malaria. Physical labor was not boding well for the Morello-Terranova clan, and was especially not boding well for Giuseppe. But he still needed to make money to help support his seven siblings. In New York, Giuseppe tried working with his father as an ornamental plasterer, which was not the easiest profession for a man with only one functional, albeit not very functional, hand. He tried to make money utilizing his logistical skills instead, first opening a coal basement, but that ended up having to sell after just one year. Then, around 1900, he opened a saloon on 13th Street, soon followed by a second saloon on Stanton Street. However, due to bad business, these two saloons would end up shutting down in 1901, 
Giuseppe made one final attempt to operate within the lines of legality by opening a date factory that employed around 15 people. But just like his other two business ventures, the factory was running at a loss and closed down within the first year. This seemed to be the last straw for Giuseppe, who had previously demonstrated that the importance of being a provider supremely overshadowed the importance of being a law-abiding citizen of any country. He was soon back in the business of what got him chased out of Italy in the first place, counterfeiting currency. But this time he was counterfeiting US currency, since it wouldn't make much sense for him to be counterfeiting Italian currency in America. Anyways, luckily for Giuseppe, his sister had just married Ignazio Lupo, who would come to earn the nickname of Lupo the Wolf, which was kind of a stupid nickname, since Lupo is Italian for wolf, which means that his nickname was technically Wolf the Wolf. However, regardless of this goofy moniker, the man was a bloodthirsty savage. He would come to be responsible for more than 60 murders in a 10-year period on behalf of the Morello crime family. The Wolf just like Giuseppe, had come to America in 1898 after fleeing arrest in Palermo, Sicily, where he had killed a business rival in the wholesale grocery business, because in Italy, grocery shopping is apparently no fucking joke. The wolf married into the Morello family in January of 1900 and quickly became Giuseppe's right-hand man. Awful pun intended. Giuseppe's counterfeiting operation was only in its infantile stages at this junction, but it was already becoming the focus of the New York Secret Service branch, with agents specially trained to detect bogus bills and covertly track street pushers with the hope of capturing the manufacturers. The first major arrest happened in June of 1900, when Giuseppe and a partner were arrested on suspicion of selling counterfeit money, which is kind of a weird charge when you think about it. Why would you sell counterfeit money? Why not just spend it? Regardless of this confusing legal paradox, Giuseppe was held on $5,000 bail, which, when adjusted for inflation, comes to a total of $150,000 to spring him from jail. As with every episode of Mobcast, all monetary amounts from here on out will be adjusted for inflation. This substantially expensive bail had grown out of a Secret Service investigation that began when counterfeit $5 bills were being passed around in Brooklyn and North Beach. $5 bills in this period had the buying power of $150 today, but they still only said $5 on the actual bill. Giuseppe was believed to be among the suppliers of this money which was described as being printed on very poor paper with crude workmanship, a trademark of Giuseppe. However, this was not enough to pin an actual case on him, and he'd end up walking out as a free man after the court was unable to provide any actual evidence for the charges. Giuseppe, being the wise old fox that he was, took a step back from the counterfeiting operation since the Secret Service was pretty pissed about him walking free and was beginning to really put the screws to finding solid evidence against him. Instead, he took a back seat to some of the other criminals that he was employing for the operation. These were alliances that Giuseppe had formed amongst a mixture of Italian and Irish criminals, 
who had no specific allegiance to the Morello family, but worked in the more traditional sense as freelance criminals. This lack of familial relation was not preferred by Giuseppe, but rather was a necessity born from the technical, mechanical, and network requirements of the counterfeiting business. Giuseppe would always opt to have his brothers be in charge of any of his criminal endeavors, since he felt that the familial bond they shared would provide an extra layer of protection against the possibility of anyone becoming an informant. He also preferred to keep as much of the earnings as possible within the family. At the moment, though, his brothers were still only 10, 12, and 14 years old, a bit too young to be in charge of a wide-scale counterfeit currency operation. So, Giuseppe had to default leadership to one of his partners, who would be taking in the largest percentage of the operation's earnings, but would still be required to kick up approximately 20% of the profit directly to Giuseppe. Lupo the Wolf would make absolutely certain of this. The Morello crime family were pioneers in the practice of body disposal, introducing the notorious barrel murder system to America, a method popular with mafiosos back in Sicily. This uncreatively titled system consisted of exactly what you'd expect it to, dumping dismembered corpses into large wooden barrels, which would then either be thrown into the sea, left on a random street corner, abandoned in a back alley, or shipped to a non-existent address in another city. So, with the counterfeiting operation now running on its own, Giuseppe expanded the breadth of his criminal enterprise by starting a real estate company in 1902, which became involved in the construction and selling of properties around New York City. Shares in the company were sold amongst the local Italian community, and for the most part, it was run legitimately, aside from the massive amounts of money from various other illegal cash-based businesses being laundered through it. These more casual criminal activities included the standard mafia activities depicted in pop culture, such as loan sharking, robbery, and what was known as the Italian Lottery, sometimes called the Numbers Game, or just the Numbers. This involved having runners give people three numbers of their choice in exchange for the purchase of a ticket, just like how the real lottery works. However, the weekly numbers that they were trying to match was the last three digits of the total amount bet at the Saratoga horse tracks for that week, as published in the newspaper. Giuseppe ran the numbers racket for all of Little Italy, Manhattan, and Italian Harlem. This was amongst one of his most lucrative operations, since it required very low amounts of oversight and was very widely played amongst the Italian-American community, of which many were impoverished and saw this illegal lottery as a glimmer of hope that they may catch a large monetary windfall. However, Giuseppe wasn't content with just profiting off of the hopes of the impoverished members of his community, and also wanted to profit off of the successful business-owning segment as well. Instead of merely robbing businesses of large amounts, and potentially bankrupting them entirely, he introduced the revolutionary method of extortion known as offering protection, which was a weekly fee that business owners had to pay up to Giuseppe in order to stay open. 
and not end up being torched or bombed to the Stone Age. All of these various criminal endeavors brought in a lot of money for Giuseppe, which he would then reinvest in his enterprise by hiring more enforcers and more runners. Opposition to Giuseppe was sparse and quickly stomped out, both figuratively and, in some cases, literally. As Giuseppe built his empire through the merciless ordering of death sentences against everyone who dared to face him, this savagery proved to be a pretty effective method of leadership, essentially giving the criminals throughout Giuseppe's expanding territory a simple decision, join or die. This may seem like a simple decision, but it wasn't always necessarily up to the individuals. Joining the Morellos, who at this point had come to be known as the 107th Street Mob, was a privilege rather than a right. The previously independent criminals working as freelancers were now being vetted and screened for their ability to be an effective and useful member. And preference was certainly given to the Italian-Americans, specifically those hailing from the Morello's home in Sicily, who were viewed as being more allegiant due to their cultural ties that they shared with the Morello clan. A mere three years after his first arrest on suspicion of counterfeiting, a 36-year-old Giuseppe was back at the front lines of his counterfeiting operation. The other criminal activities of the 107th Street mob had become autonomously run through fear and allegiance, which was mainly driven by fear. The old fox, via the wolf and his other enforcers, had made it very clear that just because he was not there to run the daily ins and outs didn't mean that he would be taking any less than the lion's share, usually around 40% of the profits. Counterfeiting was the only activity that really required Giuseppe's active input, since it was more intricate than simply having collectors and enforcers to ensure that those collectors were able to collect. And just as with legitimate industries, the specialized workers had to be paid more, and weren't as easily replaceable if they had to be disposed in a barrel. In 1903, Giuseppe went international with his counterfeiting ring, making an alliance with powerful Sicilian mafioso Don Vito Ferro, who would print the fake $5 bills in Sicily, and then smuggle them to America by sending them in the suitcases of emigrating families who were unlucky enough to be forcefully contracted for the job. These smuggled bills were nearly impossible to trace back to Giuseppe, since the incoming smugglers would simply be handed a slip of paper with instructions on where to take the suitcases full of bills once they arrived in New York City. And thus, the bills were rarely even in the same building as Giuseppe. On April 13th of 1903, the body of the brother of a police informant was found in a barrel after being brutally tortured. A United States Secret Service detective who had been investigating the counterfeiting ring traced the man back to a restaurant where he was seen with the wolf who had now graduated from enforcer to underboss 
along with associate and hitman Tommaso the Ox Petto. The man in the barrel was confirmed to be one of the low-level runners for the counterfeiting operation, who was seeking to leave the organization. With this evidence, several different mafiosi were arrested, including Giuseppe, the Wolf, and the Ox. This second arrest proved to fall apart even faster than the first one, not even making it to trial after witnesses mysteriously changed their statements, as well as some political finagling and help from Tammany Hall's own Congressman Big Tim Sullivan, who was well known as being the political voice of the criminal underworld, further proof of just how far-reaching the Morello's power had become. By 1905, Giuseppe's younger brothers had come of age to begin to play more active roles in the organization and helped Giuseppe consolidate his hold on Upper Manhattan. This consolidation was made possible by the ordered assassinations of the various Irish bosses of the area who failed to unify prior to the Morello's calculated attacks. Once the Morello's rackets had moved into the area, Giuseppe came to be recognized as the Capo di Tutti Capi, which translates to the boss of bosses, meaning that any out-of-town criminal groups that wanted to conduct operations in New York City would have to go through him, and deservingly so, as he had created the largest, most influential Sicilian crime family in the country. However, this clout throughout the underworld only served to paint a larger target on his back, as he was now being pursued by local New York police for murder, federal agents for real estate fraud, and the Secret Service for counterfeiting. The third arrest of Giuseppe for counterfeiting came in November of 1909, when city police raided a building owned by the Morello's real estate company, which was being used as a storage facility for the counterfeiting operation, and was packed to the ceiling with American and Canadian counterfeit bills, as well as correspondence letters between Giuseppe and his supplier in Sicily, which were easily identifiable because of the terrible handwriting. The old fox was arrested along with 15 other members of the Morello crime family, including the wolf. The trials began in January of 1910, and a guilty conviction was being vehemently pursued by the prosecutor, who had previously been a part of Giuseppe's failed second arrest. The trial adjourned with all 17 members convicted, with Giuseppe and the Wolf receiving the heaviest sentences, 25 years each, to be served in the Atlanta Federal Prison. With the old Fox and the Wolf behind bars, and their cases for appeal practically being laughed out of the courtroom, leadership of the Morello gang needed to be resolved quickly. Vincent, Ciro, and Nicola were aged 25, 23, and 21, respectively, at the time of Giuseppe's 1910 arrest, and were the obvious choices for who would sit at the helm of the organization. Amongst them in the running was Giuseppe's only son, Colaguero. However, he ended up getting killed in a shootout the following year, in 1912. The youngest brother, Nicola, or Nicky as he was known, was the most eager to hold the title of boss and successfully inherited it, with Vincent and Ciro becoming his close personal advisors, or consigliaries. However, Nicky's reign proved to come at a particularly bad time, as a rival criminal organization known as the Camorras viewed Giuseppe's incarceration as a prime time for them to step in 
and take over the Morellas territory in Manhattan and Harlem. The Camorra ran Brooklyn, and unlike the Sicilian Morellas, the Camorra drew its recruits from immigrants from the Naples region of Italy. Prior to this bid for power, the Morellas and the leader of the Camorras, Andrea Ricci, had an amicable relationship, but this opportunity proved to be too tempting. This conflict, in conjunction with Nikki's leadership, or lack thereof, being characterized by a short temper and an unrealistic approach of expanding control of the family's territory when they had just been hobbled by such a large arrest of their veteran members. Nikki started what would come to be known as the Mafia Camorra War, in an indirect power play made out of greed. His ambition was to seize control of the gambling houses in East Harlem, run by the Delgadio brothers, who had previously been allowed to operate independently for the price of protection by Giuseppe. Nicky put out a hit on the brothers, killing one and capturing the other. However, the financier of the gambling houses, Joseph DeMarco, was still at large and had previously proved elusive enough to avoid two other assassination attempts by the Morellos. In retaliation for the killing of the Delgadio brother, DeMarco ordered an unsuccessful assassination attempt on Nicky. This failed assassination attempt became the new primary motive for the pursuit of DeMarco but Nicky would need some help in order to carry out his revenge. He decided to seek help from the Navy Street and Coney Island gangs that operated in Brooklyn, proposing to carry out the hit on their turf during a sit-down with the heads of the two gangs regarding territory. The Navy Street gang agreed to facilitate the hit in exchange for percentage points on the gambling houses that Nicky had overthrown in East Harlem. The assassination plot, however, proved to be a bit of a disaster. The first attempt was a failure after the Navy gang hitman arrived late to the cafe and missed DeMarco entirely. And the second attempt didn't really even get started since the hitman for that attempt, kicked in the door of the wrong building, finding a boarding house full of terrified immigrants rather than the hideout of DeMarco. The third attempt was more carefully planned out, with three hitmen following DeMarco into a card game that he frequented. However, this too ended pretty poorly when the hitman, seated at the table with DeMarco, pulled a gun and shot the wrong guy, but quickly realized this and shot the only other two men at the table for good measure. One of them was DeMarco. With the death of Joe DeMarco, the Morello organization was able to further expand their gambling operations down into lower Manhattan. Unfortunately, a high-ranking member of the Navy Street gang was actually working as a mole for the Camorras and had informed them of the plot. Thus, when the expansion of the Morellos began, and they started to open their gambling dens. They just ended up getting torched by members of the Camorras. Since the goal of the Morellos had been a total monopoly on the gambling in the area, the stage was set for conflict. The Navy Street gang was soon convinced by the Camorras to betray the Morellos and helped develop a plan to lure some of the captains of the Morello gang to another meeting in Brooklyn only to have them be ambushed and murdered once they got there. The murders of these four captains were initially a mystery as to who purported them, 
and they further added to the instability of the Morello's organization, as there was a severe lack of middle management to oversee their existing operations. Nicky and one of his bodyguards traveled to Brooklyn to meet with the Navy Street Gang to try and figure out who was making a move against them and seek some protection. Once the two arrived, they were served drinks while they waited for the Navy Street representatives to arrive. However, they were told that they were actually supposed to meet at a coffee shop a few blocks away. On their way to the coffee shop, the two men were ambushed and shot dead. Nicky was only 26 when he died that September of 1916. The death of Nicky set the stage for Vincent, who was known as the Tiger, to move from his position of consigliere to full-on boss. Yet, despite his nickname, he was lacking in the ferocity compared to Nicky. He conceded the lower Manhattan territory to the Camorras and focused instead on just holding control of upper Manhattan in Harlem. Luckily for him, Giuseppe was released in 1920 after only serving nine years of his sentence. Unluckily for them all, however, a man by the name of Salvatore de Aquila, who had previously worked as a captain in the Morello gang, had begun to pursue his own empire during the reserved reign of Vincent. He did so successfully and had become a mafia boss with his own crew, but now felt threatened by the release of Giuseppe and put a price on his head. De Ocula had become powerful enough to put out hits on multiple of the newly released mobsters, who in turn fled to Sicily to hide out for a few months, as well as restructure their organization for their inevitable return. One of these men was Giuseppe Masseria, aka Joe Masseria, aka Joe the Boss, who would become one of the most powerful gangsters in American history in his own right. However, at this time in 1921, he was the chief bodyguard to Giuseppe. Masseria began to take control of their return to America, organizing a hit on De Aquila's underboss, Umberto Valenti. Masseria, while still in Sicily, sent the order for a group of gunmen to kill Valenti. Among these gunmen was a 25-year-old Salvatore Luciano. With the successful whacking of Valenti, the De Aquila organization was quickly destabilized and his power quickly dissipated. Upon the return of Giuseppe and Masseria to America, a decision on leadership had to be made. Giuseppe, now age 52, saw the influence that Masseria had, and sensing that his time to rule had passed and that Masseria was on the rise, took a role as consigliere to Joe Masseria, who began his monumental rise to power during the Prohibition years of the 1920s. Joe Masseria's life will be covered in an upcoming episode of Mobcast. <laughs>